welcome Andy Lappin this morning. All right? Amen. God bless you. Well, good morning. It's an honor to be here with you. As uh, Pastor Ben mentioned, my name is Andy Lappins, and I'm a full-time Assemblies of God uh, itinerant evangelist. And uh, the specific focus of my ministry, as he mentioned, is I do a lot of teaching and training in regards to one-on-one personal witnessing and what I like to call conversational evangelism. Uh, I'm not sure if you're aware of this fact or not, but that form of evangelism, meaning you and I as individual Christians, as we are out in the world, when we go to work, when we go to the grocery store, when we're with non-Christian family members at Thanksgiving, wherever, uh, and we, we're around non-Christians, and we simply engage them in conversation, and then we begin to share the gospel in the course of that conversation. That form of evangelism, by far and away, has proven to be the single most effective way at reaching lost people. Again, I, I'll share a statistic with you I shared in the first service. Um, there's a book I read a while ago called Share Jesus Without Fear by an author named Bill Fay. And in the beginning of that book, he listed a statistic from an organization called the Institute of American Church Growth. And they said, this organization said that based on their research, they estimated that more than 85% of the people today globally that are coming to Christ, making genuine lifetime commitments to Christ, they said they're found to be doing that as a result of a friend or an acquaintance who explains the gospel to them on a one-to-one basis over a period of time. They said less than 15% of people today come to Christ through just what they kind of generally called an event. That could be anything from a, a Sunday morning church service to a big evangelistic crusade or an Easter egg hunt or a Christmas choir concert or whatever. But you know what? When you, when you look at, especially in America, most of the church's time, effort, and money goes into the big events and sadly, teaching and training and equipping and mobilizing us as individual Christians for one-on-one personal evangelism is largely being neglected. You might say, Andy, why do you say that? Well, how many of you ever heard of Dr. Bill Bright? I'm sure many of you have, right? He's the founder of a great ministry called Campus Crusade for Christ. He died, I think, five or six years ago, somewhere around there. But in one of the last books Dr. Bill Bright wrote before he passed away, it was called The Coming Revival. He said in that book that, listen to this, he said, not me, he said only two percent of all born-again Christians share their faith on a consistent basis. Only two percent. Now, again, I, 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 I want to focus on that word on a consistent basis. It's not one of those once a year, oops, this kind of happened, and we stumbled into a conversation, and I share the I'm talking about, he's saying only two percent of Christians consistently, purposefully, aggressively are trying to engage people in conversations where they can share the gospel. And I've traveled full-time for over 11 years now, and tragically, I found that 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 statistic is absolutely true. Most Christians never or very seldom share the gospel. And there are a number of reasons for that, and I won't get into all of that. But uh, So that's why we do a lot of the teaching that we do. And I'm just so glad to be a part of of, of your church this morning and kicking off your missions convention. Uh, Take your Bibles with me, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 7. And as you're turning there to Matthew chapter 7, let me make quick mention. You may have noticed when you came in this morning, I've got a little product table outside here. Uh, I bring resources with me that people can purchase, again, that can help them learn how to be more effective in their evangelism. There are a number of books on the table. Um, There are two great books by a good friend of mine named Mark Cahill. Uh, This book is called One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. This is a great kind of how-to 
instructional book on how to start conversations, how to share the gospel. Um, there's another great kind of instructional book on how to do that called Hell's Best Kept Secret by a good friend of mine named Ray Comfort. Um, my friend Mark has also written another great apologetic book called, excuse me, called One Heartbeat Away, Your Journey into Eternity. This is really written to non-Christians, and it gives... It compares the creation versus evolution. Where does the evidence point? How do you know the Bible really is the word of God and not just some mythical book of fables? It gives proof and evidence for what we believe. And, uh, and there's another book back there on my table by Ray Comfort called The Defender's Guide for Life's Toughest Questions. And he lists in that book 99 objections or questions that atheists and evolutionists have have given them, and he answers them, and, and he put them all in that book, and there's also some great uh, business card-sized gospel tracts uh, on the table that are real easy for you to hand out. they got a gospel message on the back. They can help start conversations. How many of you uh, stay home on Halloween and give out candy? Just none of you? Okay, one, two, okay. Uh, this is something our family's done for years. I love Halloween because what other day of year do you get people – actually come to your door that you can give them gospel literature. I don't know about you, but that, that kind of gets me exciting. So uh, what my family does is when my kids get home from school on Halloween, we've got a bunch of Ziploc sandwich bags, big bowl of candy, and a bunch of gospel tracts. And we put candy and gospel tracts in bags, and when kids come to the door, we were able to put those in, in their bag. And then that night before we go to bed, we pray for about the 200 kids that we were able to share the gospel with. You guys can do that. You guys can put information about your church, your children's ministry, whatever. It's a great opportunity to help get the word out, and you guys seem real excited about that. But anyway, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good opportunity. But uh, anyways, I want to uh, share with you a teaching that I have entitled "The Great American Myth." And uh, let me begin by sharing with you some statistics I found about six years ago. Uh, there's a Christian organization in California called the Barner Research Group, and they're always surveying people and, and asking people questions and coming up with statistics and doing research. And um, they said that currently today, they estimated that 96% of Americans say they believe in God. And they also estimated that about 82% of all American adults would label or call themselves a Christian. Shortly after I saw those statistics, I was reading the September 25th, 2006 issue of Time Magazine, and I was kind of surprised because they had almost identical statistics. Time Magazine said that 92%, a little lower, 92% of Americans say they believe in God or some other higher power, and 75%, in other words, three out of every four Americans believe that they and their family will get into heaven when they die. Now, guys, based on those kind of statistics, wouldn't you agree with me that it would be safe to assume or come to the conclusion that most or many Americans believe if there is life after death, if there is a heaven, if there is a hell, wouldn't you agree with me that most people today are convinced they're going to heaven when they die, right? And then just the opposite would be true, that there are probably very few people, a very small percentage of your family and friends who think, hey, I could possibly go to hell when I die. Okay, and that is true based on the research that's been done. Now, with that in mind, let's look at something Jesus says prophetically here in Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus is speaking, and he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. 
Now let's think about what Jesus just said for a few moments. Jesus is saying basically here, listen, every human being during their lifetime on the earth, they are going to travel on one of two roads. How many of you know Jesus only gave us two options here, right? He didn't say there were ten roads. He didn't say there was an infinity of roads. How many of you know the world says there are many roads to God? No, no, Jesus says there's only two roads and only one of them gets to God, right? So look at verse 13. It, the first road Jesus described there in verse 13, he says, that, ha- that road has a gate that is wide. The, rod- the road itself is broad, in other words, really big. And he said that that road would finally lead people to a destination. Here he calls destruction. Now, we know that that word destruction is, is representative or symbolic of where? Somebody tell me. Of hell, right? Of the lake of fire, of that place of unimaginable torment and punishment that the book of Revelation describes so vividly for us. And how many of you know Jesus spoke about hell a lot in the four Gospels? In fact, if you really study it, Jesus referred to hell twice as many times as he talked about heaven. Hell is a real place that Jesus spoke about very frequently. Now, let me ask you another question, folks. When you look at verse 13, what is the adjective that Jesus uses to describe the relative amount of people who will die and go to hell? He says, many, look at that. He says, and many will travel on that road and sadly, tragically, will go to destruction. And then in verse 14, Jesus tells about the only other road somebody can travel on. He says, look at it, he said, the gate's small. The road itself is very narrow, and Jesus said that that road would lead people to a destination that he called life. Now, we know that that word life is symbolic or representative of heaven, right, of everlasting life with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, again, when you look at verse 14, notice what is the adjective Jesus uses to describe how many people are going to travel on that road and end up in heaven. He says what? Few. Guys, this is, this is sad. This should break our hearts. This should really concern us because think about the implications of this. Jesus is very clearly saying to you and I, basically, once life as we know it is ended, once all of the future prophetic events of the Bible has been fulfilled, basically saying once every human being who's ever lived since Adam and Eve has been judged by God and, and God either lets them into heaven or they're condemned to hell for all of eternity, Jesus very clearly here is saying that in comparison, tragically, there will be exceedingly far more people who will be condemned to hell in comparison to the amount of people that God's going to let into heaven. Now, let's do something really important this morning for us. Let, let's take that, those scriptures and let's compare them to the contemporary statistics we just looked at. Folks, are they the same or are they opposite? They're opposite, aren't they? They're, they're totally opposite. In other words, what, is, what, what, what do Americans say? They say, oh, most of us are going to heaven. Only a few will probably end up in hell. The Bible suggests the opposite. No, sadly, many, it said, will go to hell. Only In comparison, only a few will make it into heaven. Now, guys, how many of you know, one of the things this should communicate to you and I as Christians when it comes to evangelism is aren't we dealing with a mass deception here? Sure we are, right? We're, we're dealing with multitudes of people who are believing a lie. They're believing something's going to happen that we can clearly see from the Bible is not going to happen. And so we've got to understand that we're dealing with people who are deceived. They're believing in a lie. And what I want to talk to you about this morning is the single greatest reason why we have this mass deception. And it has to do with something that I've called the great American myth. Now, 
Let me quickly define for you from Webster's Dictionary what the word myth means. A myth is a person or thing having only an imaginary or unverifiable existence. So if something's a myth, it's not real. Someone created it in their imagination, and you can't prove that it actually exists. Now, let me tell you what I have called or labeled as being the great American myth. It's good people. Good people is the great American myth. Folks, the vast majority of people alive on planet Earth today would consider themselves to be a good person. This is exactly what the Bible says in Proverbs 20, verse 6. The King James Version says it this way, Most men will proclaim everyone his own goodness. If you're not uh, fully convinced of what I'm saying, then please, and I mean this sincerely, do some research on your own. And here's what you could do. It's very simple. It's not offensive. As you are at work, when you are with other people, begin to ask people this simple question. Ask people, would you consider yourself to be a good person? Ladies and gentlemen, I can guarantee you that 99 to 100% of the people you ask that question to, what do you think they're going to say? They will look at you and they will say, yes, I do. I've had a number of people say, Andy, I think I'm a very good person. Now, folks, if a non-Christian says that to you, that's very significant. Let me try and explain this. If a non-Christian says to you, I would consider myself to be a good person, that is very clear evidence of the presence of self-righteousness in the life of that person. And that self-righteousness is the single biggest obstacle to them coming to Christ. That's the great, that self-righteousness in their lives is the biggest reason why they sense no need to repent, turn from their sin, and put their faith in Jesus Christ. Okay, let me try and show you this. Please turn to Psalm 36, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 36, verses 1 and 2, and I want to look at these two verses. Here in, in Psalm 36, in verses 1 through 4, David's giving us some of the spiritual characteristics of non-Christians. And I don't want to look at all that David says in verses 1 through 4, but I would like us to look at verses 1 and 2. In Psalm 36, beginning in verse 1, David says, An oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked, or the non-Christian. Now look at the first way David describes people who aren't Christians. He says, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, I don't know about you and the people you know, but that, what David just said there, there's no fear of God before their eyes, that describes every non-Christian that I know, every non-Christian relative, every non-Christian neighbor and friend. Folks, how many of you know that non-Christians don't seem very afraid of God, do they? Come on, folks. I mean, really? They don't seem afraid of God. You might say, well, Andy, why should they be afraid of God? Well, folks, it really makes sense. What happens to someone if they die in their sins and reject Jesus Christ. The, the Bible is very clear to say what? God's going to give them justice, and they will spend an eternity in a lake of fire. Folks, shouldn't that concern people? Shouldn't that terrify people? That, that, that folks, should cause them to be have intense fear of God and what God can and will do to them if they die rejecting Christ. But David says there's no fear of God before the eyes of the non-Christian. They don't think they have any reason to fear God. And folks, think about this. I mean, doesn't most non-Christians, don't they seem more concerned about what breakfast cereal they're going to eat in the morning than they do about where they're going to spend eternity? 
Absolutely, right? You try talking to some of your non-Christian friends about Jesus. How many of you know they're not real excited, are they? Come on. They want to talk about the Michigan-Michigan State football game, right? They want to talk about the Lions playing the Bears on Monday. They don't want to talk about Jesus and the cross and all this stuff. I, mean, I don't want to, They're not interested in that. Now, why is this? Look at verse 2. Let me break this down here by certain words and phrases. David says, for in his own eyes, what that phrase is referring to is a person's perception or opinion of themselves, how they would look at themselves. Then look at what David says. Here's what non-Christians will do, and we've all done this. He says, for in his own eyes, he, the non-Christian, does what? He flatters who? Himself. Okay? Think about that. What does that mean to flatter someone? How many of you know if I'm flattering Pastor Ben, I'm not saying anything bad. I'm not saying anything critical or anything negative. If I'm flattering Pastor Ben, I'm just saying good things, positive things. I'm just noticing everything that I think is good and positive about his life and ministry and preaching, okay? And, and what David is talking there is, is a strong tendency that we all have, and that is the tendency to think the best of ourselves and the worst of others. I know, I know I wouldn't get any amens there, but we do have that tendency. That's why in Matthew 7, 3, don't turn there, that's where Jesus said, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your neighbor's eye when you have a whole lumberyard hanging on your face? Now, the word lumberyard's not in your Bible unless you got some really weird, whacked-out translation, but different translations do use different words, right? Some say log, a, a, a beam. I mean, it's almost comical if you try and imagine what Jesus is describing. He's saying, you've got this huge fence post sticking out of your eyeball, and you're walking around as though nothing's wrong. And, why one, and one day you happen to meet somebody, and you notice that in the corner of their right eye, there's a little piece of sawdust. And, oh, immediately we sit them down and begin to tell them how wicked and sinful and destructive that is. You need to deal with that. But when any attention is brought to this sequoia redwood log that's protruding from our head, you know what most people's attitude is? Most people say, hey, this is normal. I'm not the one with the problem. You are. Come on, folks, because don't get self-righteous on me this morning. How many of you would agree that it's always easier to see sin in other people than it is in ourselves, right? It's always easier to point out other people's sin. It's not so easy to, to see the sin that's in our own life. And this is especially true in the life of a non-Christian. When they flatter themselves, that's when, when non-Christians say, I'm a good person. Okay, now what's the big deal? What does that do? Look at verse 2 again. For in his own eyes he flatters himself, here are the effects, too much to detect or hate his sin. What David's saying there is if a non-Christian believes that they are a good person. David's saying that that is self-righteousness that blinds people to their sin. And I hope we can all appreciate how significant this is. Because can we understand that if someone does not clearly see that they've sinned, they're not going to sense any need of a Savior. Right? As long as someone doesn't think that they're sick, as long as someone thinks, hey, I'm perfectly physically fine, they're not going to see a need for a doctor. They're not going to see a need for medication. And that's what David's saying here. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says the God of this world, who is that? That's Satan, right? That's the devil. The God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. How many of you know, th there are people all over the world today that are walking around with blinders on. They don't see their sin. They don't see their need of the cross. And, and Satan has blinded people's minds. What is it that Satan uses to blind people of their need of Christ? It is primarily self-righteousness, pride. I'm a good person. All of that. Jesus said this in Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. He said, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. 
I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, what did, what did Jesus mean there? I've not come to call the righteous. Does that mean that when Jesus left heaven and came to the earth, does that mean that there were some people on the earth who were righteous and some people who were sinners? No. That would go against Scripture, right? Because what does Romans 3.23 say? For all have sinned and fallen short. Everybody's a sinner, right? Since Adam and Eve, every baby that's coming into the world came in a sinner, separated from God. So what did Jesus mean when he said, I've not come to call the righteous? Here's what he meant. He, he meant that only people who understand that they are sick will see a need of a doctor. And only people who understand that they are sinners will see a need of a savior. If you understand that, say amen. Okay, that's what he was saying. He's saying, listen, as long as you think you're righteous, as long as you think you're a good person, you're not going to see a need for me. You're not going to see a need for what I'm getting ready to do on the cross. It's only when you understand that you are a sinner that then you'll understand why I came. Then you'll understand what I've done for you. Now, guys, for just a minute, let's think about not what does the Bible teach, but let, for just a moment, let's think about what does our society tell us about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? What does our culture try and teach people about who goes to heaven and who goes to hell? Let's not think about what does Jesus say for just a moment. Let's answer the question, what would Oprah say? Okay? In other words, what would society say? Now, I, I realize I'm speaking in a very, with a very, painting with a very broad brush. I'm speaking very generally here. But how many of you would agree with me that the world system says good people die and go to where? Heaven. And only bad people die and go to hell. I can guarantee you, folks, this is the singular, most popular, widely accepted philosophy in the world, not only in this country. People in the world today believe good people die and go to heaven, only bad people die and go to hell. And, and this explains so much about our society. Now, if you would, please, take your Bibles and turn to Mark chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Because a few moments ago, I made the statement that good people is the great American myth. Now, I don't know if you caught what I meant there. When I said good people is the great American myth, what I was basically saying was, Good people do not exist, right? By definition, if they're a myth, they're not real. Now, when I say that, you may not have agreed with me. You may have thought, well, I, I know not everybody's a Christian, but I don't know if I'd go so far as to say there's no good people. And I've heard a lot of Christians say things like this. It, maybe you've said this or you've heard somebody say this. We, we say, well, I know so-and-so is not a Christian, but really they're a good person, right? We, and I know what people mean. They're nice. They're friendly. They're, they're kind. They're generous, whatever. But let's look at what Jesus says here. Let's just look at Mark 10, verses 17 and 18. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked. Now, look at this. What must I, what, do to inherit eternal life? Folks, look at me for just a moment. How many of you know most people believe that they can earn their way into heaven, right? Look at what the rich young ruler said. He said, what must I do, okay? And, and people believe that if I'm good enough, I can earn my way into heaven, right? Most people believe, hey, as long as my good deeds outnumber my bad deeds, I get the golden ticket, I get into heaven, and God will be happy, okay? So he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, take special notice of verse 18, Jesus' answer to his question. Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. 
Now, I don't know about you, but I think Jesus was as clear and as simple as you could possibly be there. According to Jesus, in Mark 10, verse 18, let me ask you a question, folks. How many good people are there? None. What did Jesus say? He said, no one is good except, what did he say? God alone or God exclusively. Now, guys, when the Bible talks about being good, here's what we, we, we use the word good in different ways. Here's how the Bible defines good. Good means to be morally perfect. When the Bible talks about being good, it means to be morally perfect. How many of you know that excludes all of us here? Amen. The only one who's truly good is what Jesus said, God alone. Now, if this is true, and it is, then this presents a really significant question for all of us. And the question is, why? Why does humanity as a whole and why does God have two totally opposite opinions about this subject? I mean, what, what do most people think? Most people think what? I'm a good person. You're a good person. There's tons of good people. What does God's word say? Nobody's good. That's a pretty radical difference of opinion. Why do we have this radical difference of opinion? There is an easy to understand and a logical answer to that question. Let me explain it. The reason why humanity and God have two totally different opinions is because humanity and God use two totally different standards of judgment. In other words, let me explain what I mean. How a, a human being typically judges whether they're good or not is very different from how God determines whether someone is good or not. Let me share with you what the most common human standard is that we as people will use when we try and determine whether we're good or not. It's other people. Other people is the most common standard that we use when we try and determine whether we're good or not. This is why, let me see if you guys have ever experienced this. Have you ever been trying to witness to somebody? And maybe you start trying to say, hey, listen, you're a sinner. And you ever have anybody kind of get a little frustrated or upset with you and say, well, hey, wait a minute, Andy. It's not like I'm a murderer. Come on, you ever, you ever had anything like that happen? Or you ever anybody say, well, Andy, I haven't done the things he did. I'm not, I haven't done the things she did, right? And I'm not a bank robber. I'm not some terrorist or child molester. Now, when people say those kinds of things, folks, what are they doing? They're comparing themselves to what? Other people. And, and what are they saying? Basically, they're saying that is a bad person, and in comparison, I am a good person. This is what we do as self-righteous, corruptible human beings. In, in Luke 18, verse 11, Jesus tells the story of the tax collector and the Pharisee who come to the temple to pray. And, 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 and in Luke 18, 11, you can look it up later this afternoon if you want. Here's how the Pharisee starts his prayer. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, tax collectors, or even like this, or, or, you know, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What was the Pharisee doing? He was comparing himself, what, to other people, and he was saying, what, they are bad people, and by comparison, I am such a good person. I can guarantee you, folks, that every one of your non-Christian family members and friends, this is what they're thinking, okay? They're thinking, I haven't done that, I haven't done that, I don't do these things that those people did. They're bad people, I'm a good person, and in their mind, this mentality of good people going to heaven, bad people going to hell is reinforced all the time, okay? Now, folks, how many of you know that that's not God's standard? In other words, how many of you know that nowhere in the Bible does it say that on Judgment Day, God's going to take two people and compare them, and whoever sinned more, he goes to hell, and whoever sinned less, 
little fat babies with wings materialize and usher them into the glories of heaven. Okay, it doesn't say that, right? So that's not God's standard. So folks, listen to me, this is so significant. If we want to effectively reach our, our family, our, our unsaved friends, our unsaved co-workers, people in our community who have this mindset, it's ingrained in them. It, it's solidified in them. They believe it with all their heart. If we want to effectively reach them, we've got to start by getting them to use a different standard of judgment. They're using a wrong standard of judgment, thereby coming to a wrong conclusion about themselves, right? So we've got to use a different standard of judgment. And if you can do that many times, not all the time, but many times you can totally change their whole perception of themselves. Think about this. There's a little girl who lives on a farm. One day she comes by a window. She looks out into a dark green grassy field, and she sees a little white lamb munching on some of the grass. Now, immediately her, her thought or her opinion or perception of that lamb is, boy, look how white. Look how pretty. Boy, look how clean that lamb looks. Boy, it looks just about perfect. The little girl goes away for part of the day, and while she's gone, six inches of snow falls and totally covers that field. Later on, she walks by the window. She sees that exact same lamb, but now her opinion or her perception of that lamb is different. Now she's not thinking, look how white, pretty, and clean. Now she's thinking, boy, look how dirty. Look how gray. Look how filthy. I mean, there's dirt in the wall. There's, there's filth. There's poop in the wall. I mean, come on. Can I say that here? I mean, uh, uh, I mean, they live on a farm, right? I mean, they're just nasty stuff. On and, and, and she says, boy, that lamb just looks filthy. It doesn't look the same to me anymore. Now, folks, what was it that changed her opinion? It's the same little girl. It's the same lamb. What was it that changed her mind? It was when a different standard of judgment was introduced. Let me explain that. How many of you know when she compared that lamb to the dark green grass, with that dark green grass as the background, it made the lamb look better than it was, right? She didn't notice all of the imperfections. Well, what happened later on when she compared that lamb to the pure white snow? Did the snow magically create all of those imperfections? No, it didn't create the imperfection. It only helped to expose the imperfections. And how many of you know only when that little girl compared that lamb to the pure white snow did she finally see that lamb as it truly was? Okay? So we need to get these people to quit comparing themselves to other people. And if we can get them to look at themselves through God's perspective, they'll begin to see themselves as God does. Okay, what's, what's, what's God's standard? Well, I'm glad you asked. Romans 3.23 is a very familiar verse that says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But, folks, it's not enough to just tell people that they're sinners. We need to define what that word sin is. And the, the definition of sin is found in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. The Bible says very simply and very clearly, everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. So, again, the Bible is very simple. When the Bible says talks about sin, it's talking about breaking God's what? God's law. Okay, what does that word law refer to? Well, it refers to the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to um, Romans 7, 7, please. Again, when the Bible talks about sin in relation to breaking God's law, it is primarily referring to, mainly prefer, referring to, the moral law of God, the Ten Commandments found in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. Let me just show you an example of this by looking at something very important that the Apostle Paul said. Look at Romans 7, 7. Paul wrote, what shall we say then? 
Is the law sin? Certainly not. Now look at this next statement. He says, indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the what? The law. That's an important statement. Basically, what Paul's saying is, hey, before someone showed me the Ten Commandments, I thought I was a pretty good dude. I, I, mean, I thought I hadn't killed nobody. I hadn't robbed any banks. I wasn't a rapist. I just kind of did my job. I took care of my family. I didn't kick the dog. Okay, I, I thought I was a pretty good guy. But when someone put the Ten Commandments in front of me, wow, that changed my whole perspective. I saw, hey, I've lied, so I'm a liar. I've stolen stuff, so boy, that makes me a thief. It says don't commit adultery, but man, Jesus said in Matthew 5, verses 27 and 20, if I even look at a woman and lust after her, I've just committed adultery with her in my heart. I did that. I blasphemed the name of God. I've, I've put other things before God. I've had God. Paul's saying what? The Ten Commandments changed my whole perception of myself. Okay? And how do we know he's talking about the Ten Commandments? Well, look at the example he gives next. For he says, For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had said, Do not covet. If you're familiar at all with the Ten Commandments, then you know that the last one, number 10, says, You shall not covet. So Paul's saying, I didn't know that to just be greedy was a sin until what? The Ten Commandments told me it was a sin. The Ten Commandments totally changed Paul's perception of himself. It changed him from thinking I'm a good guy on my way to heaven to I'm a sinner on my way to hell in desperate need of a Savior, of forgiveness. And so, guys, we need to understand that it's the law of God that, that we need to use in, in evangelism. The law of God is God's standard that he's going to use to judge humanity by on Judgment Day. James 2.12 says that. It says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law. Folks, how many of you know other people might make us look good, but God's law will show us what they look like to him? Amen? Other people may make us look good, but the law shows us what we really look like to God. Okay? The law is God's standard for what he considers to be good. If you're still there in Romans 7, jump down a few verses and look at verse 12. Paul says, so then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and what? Good. So Paul's saying, here's God's standard for what he considers holy, righteous, and good. It's his law. Now, if that's God's standard and I want to be a good person, what does that mean? That means that my life would have to match up perfectly with what? The law, right? If I break any of the Ten Commandments, I'm not a good person anymore. I, I don't deserve heaven. If, as soon as I break any of God's laws, I become a sinner and deserve hell. So, folks, I hope you're beginning to understand that we've got to learn how to use the law, and we can do this, okay? Maybe sometime I'll come back. I'd love to do more teaching where I can teach you in conversational, non-offensive ways how to incorporate the Ten Commandments into a conversation where you're showing people that you're not a good person but you're a sinner. Again, if you want a, a tremendous resource on my table, there's a brown book called The Way of the Master by Ray Comfort. That is a great, in-depth, very expansive look at why and how to use the Ten Commandments and what are the consequences for not doing this. Okay, we have some tremendous resources on the table. So, I, again, just guys, the law must be used to show someone of their sin first. It, it's just like when we use the, the law should precede the gospel. We should go through the law first and then follow it up with the gospel. You might say, why should we do that? Well, folks, how many of you know a doctor is going to first convince someone they have a disease before they offer the cure? 
right? If a doctor just offers somebody a cure and that person doesn't think they need it, they're going to say, hey, thanks, doc, but no thanks. I'm fine. I don't need what you have. A doctor will convince someone that they have the disease first. Then once they understand it, then what do they say? Hey, but I've got some good news. Here's the good news. Here's the cure, okay? And the problem is today we've been offering people the cure without first convincing them they have the disease. What it, think about what did Jesus say, and I'm going to end with this. In, in Matthew 5, verse 17, you don't have to turn there, but Jesus said, Jesus said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but I came to what? Fulfill them. How many of you know Jesus Christ was the only perfect person? Amen. Jesus never once broke any of the Ten Commandments. Jesus fulfilled the law. Why? Because how many of you know we couldn't? We're sinners, man. We're, we have a natural bent. Ephesians say we are by nature objects of wrath. Jesus did what we couldn't do by fulfilling the law. And so when he died on the cross, he was taking the punishment that we deserve so that if we'll repent and put our trust in him, God can forgive us for all the crimes we've committed, and he can give us the righteousness of Christ, and we can go to heaven. Isn't that good news? Amen. Let me pray with you, and then Pastor Ben's going to come. Father, thank you so much for this morning. Thank you, God, for these simple, clear, powerful truths that are in your word. God, we are sinners. The law shows us we're sinners. We're not good people. The law convinces us of that. But, God, I thank you that your word also has such great news, the gospel, the good news, that says Jesus Christ did what we couldn't do. Jesus fulfilled the law on our behalf, and he suffered our punishment so that if we'll put our faith in Christ alone, you can forgive us on that basis. And, Lord, we can be welcomed into heaven. And so, God, I just pray for every Christian here today, Lord, that you would help us to understand these truths and to desire to use them in our lives, Lord, to help reach the lost. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Praise the Lord. You know, we need to hear good, solid truth like this that will challenge us to maybe change our perspective and look at others uh, in a little different light. Uh, one of the things I've been praying is that my heart would grow for those that are, are lost, that are far away from the Lord. How many of you can think of someone in your life right now that doesn't know the Lord, as far as you know? There's someone in your life that, that if they were to die today, they would not spend an eternity in, in heaven with where, where maybe you are going. And I'll tell you, that is a, a challenge in my heart. I was uh, saying to the staff this week that I am asking the Lord to allow me personally to reach at least one person from now till Christmas outside of these four walls. Almost every week we see someone come to the Lord or rededicate their life in church, and, and that's a great place to do that. But my desire is I want to be a soul winner outside of these walls and if I was honest, I, it's been a long time since I've led to someone to the Lord outside of these four walls. And, uh, and I, when I think about that, the weight of that, uh, I'm saying, Lord, help me be a witness. And I wonder how many of you would say, Lord, help me to use some of these tools. I want to encourage you on your way out. Look at some of these tools. Grab one of the books. Grab some of the teaching tapes because we all need to be sharpened in these areas. And the reason we highlight missions first uh, from a personal standpoint is because it's true. It's easy sometimes to, uh, to write a check or to send money uh, across the world. And how important is that? We know that. But, man, it's harder many times to speak up at school, right, or in your workplace. 
Or if you're the boss, you're saying, boy, to your employees, hey, this is how God has moved in my life, or whatever the case might be, in your neighborhood, in your family. And, uh, and I, my challenge to myself is, Lord, help me to reach someone. And I pray that you would join me in those pursuits. Would you stand this morning? We want to uh, close uh, by identifying a person or two in our lives that we would believe that are far away from the Lord. Does anyone, uh, can you think of someone or two, some people that are in our lives that are away from the Lord? And just for, for a moment, just ask the Lord just to give you a burden, that your heart would grow for that person, that, that there would be a, a desire deep within your soul to, uh, to be able to reach them. And where they may feel like they're a good person, uh, not that we would say, hey, you're so bad, but just show them the standard is God's word. And we're all falling short of that standard. Lord, help us to be an example. Lord, I pray that you would just minister to each and every one of us today. Lord, as we leave this place, that we would be mindful of you in our lives, thankful for what you already have done, and thankful for using us to reach someone else. Lord, I pray for all of this. Lord, go before us, behind us, and all around us. We pray it all in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.